Now we come to this 38th chapter today, and very candidly, it reveals the sin of Judah. First of all, it leads me to say that the sons of Jacob were certainly not very much of a comfort to him. It looks as if all the sons were problem children, and I think they were, with the exception of Joseph and Benjamin. And, of course, there was a great heartbreak connected with Joseph. And this reveals to us that Jacob did spend too much time in paid Naram, accumulating a fortune rather than teaching his children. And he was just a little bit different from Abraham. You'll remember that God said of Abraham, "...for I know him, that he'll command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment." that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of it. But old Jacob didn't do that, friends. He was so busy down there contending with Uncle Laban, he didn't have much time for those boys. And that was highly tragic, because each one of them seemed to have gotten involved in something that was very, very sinful. But why are we told about Judah here? especially at this juncture? Well, there's a twofold reason. I suggested last time one of the reasons is that these names that are here, we'll look at them in a moment, they happen to be in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus that opens the Gospel of Matthew, very frankly, reveals that he came down into the human family. It's a sinful line, but this is the way he came. And then there's another reason for this, especially at this time. Because beginning in the next chapter, we go down to the land of Egypt. And Joseph goes ahead, as he very clearly detected from the fortuitous concurrence of circumstances in his life, that God had sent him down there to prepare the way for the coming down of the children of Israel. Not so much for a then famine, but to get them out, actually, of the land of Canaan from, actually, the abominable Canaanites into the seclusion of the land of Goshen down in Egypt. You see that had Jacob and his family continued on in the land of Canaan, they would have dropped down to the level of the Canaanites. We find that these people here are an abomination and were an abomination. And even when the children of Israel came into that land, why, they had a great influence upon them. And so God is getting his people down there, and this chapter certainly reveals the necessity for it. Now it's Judah. Judah is the kingly line, as we'll see later on. But notice Judah. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, this is in chapter 38, verse 1. Notice this, And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. Now, this is the story of Judah. He went down to do business with a certain Adulamite. When he got down there, he saw this Canaanitish woman. He had an affair with her, 
And she conceived and bare a son. He called his name Ur. And believe me, that's exactly what this man Judah had done. He had erred, or he'd certainly sinned. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, called his name Shelah. He was at Shezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Tamar gets into the genealogy of Christ, by the way. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now look at this family, just loaded with sin. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And so he didn't take her to wife, by the way. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now this is certainly something that fits right into the present hour when there's such an emphasis on sex. Believe me, the sons of Jacob put an emphasis there also. Certainly Judah did, let's say that. We read then, Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in thy father's house, tell Shelah, my son, be grown. For, he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, that was the custom in that day, that when a man died, his brother was to marry her. And the two of them, actually, they refused to do it. And they were smitten with death. Now... Judah tells her to go to her father's house and wait. He has another son that's coming along. And now we read verse 12. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up into his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. Now it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And apparently this deal that Judah had of going up to see this Adulamite by the name of Hira was in connection with sheep, raising sheep. Because now they have a tremendous flock together, and Judah goes up there to shear them. And Tamar, who had been waiting all this time, she came to the conclusion that Judah was not going to give Sheila as her husband. And she put her widow's garments off from her, covered her with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, the Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. And this is, of course, the third son of Judah. Now, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she'd covered her face. You see, she'd taken off her widow's garments, and now she's dressed there, sitting by the wayside, her face covered, which was the custom of the harlots in that day. And he turned unto her, by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. Now, you see, he's propositioned the woman. This is Judah, and he'd done the same thing with her mother. A Canaanite. It's a very black picture, by the way. It's a very 
ugly story that we have here. And Judas saw her. He thought she was a harlot. So she saw an opportunity of taking advantage of him, and she did. And he said, I'll send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? He said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, thy bracelets, thy staff that's in thine hand. He gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. She arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judas sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. He came into the town. He said, I'm looking for the harlot that's here. He asked the men of that place, saying, Where's the harlot that was openly by the wayside? They said, There was no harlot in this place. said, We don't have one here. Verse 22, And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judas, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judas said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. That's Judah. <laughs> May I say to you, this is your double standard. God doesn't approve of these things, friend. It's here in his word, but this doesn't mean he approves of it. The very fact that here shows that he disproves of it. This is not the way that he wanted his people to act. And they're acting just like the Canaanites, and he's going to have to get them down into the land of Egypt and segregate them there in the land of Goshen to get them away from this terrible influence that there was there. This reveals the necessity for that. Why, this thing's almost unspeakable that Judah is doing here. The fact of the matter is, he can see the sin in somebody else. Can't see it in himself. You remember, Nathan went in and told David a story about a fellow had a little ewe lamb, and the rich man with a lot of sheep took it away from him, killed a little ewe lamb. Believe me, David was just like Judah here. You could see sin in somebody else. David says, we're going to get that man, and we're going to stone him to death because of that. He said, I'd like to know where the man is. Nathan said, you're the man. It's interesting. We see sin in other people that we ourselves can't see within our own being. This man's guilty. In fact, a double charge is against him, and this thing that he's done is unspeakable. It's his own daughter-in-law. And this is something that it's the custom there among the Canaanites. This is the way they lived. We think today this sex revolution that we're having, and they talk about freedom of sex. Well, my friend, the heathen in the past all had the freedom of it. That's the reason they were heathen, and that's the reason that they lived as low as they did, and finally were judged and removed from the scene. The Canaanites are gone. They disappeared. God judged them. That ought to be a message to any person, but a great many don't seem to get it, even Christians today. Men will say, well, I wonder why this is in the Bible. It's in the Bible to warn you and me, friends. It's in the Bible to let us know that God did not approve of it, 
and it'll explain why God is going to get them off down into the land of Egypt. Now, when she's brought before father-in-law, why, notice what happens. Verse 25, when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelets and stuff. You know, when all of that was presented to old Judah, he was going to have her stoned. And she said, Well, I'd like for you to know who the father of the child to be is, the one who owns this stuff I'm showing you. That's who it is. Judah looked at it, and he had to admit it was his. Verse 26, And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her gain no more. This is something that was repulsive even to Judah. But this is the way the Canaanites acted. <laughs> this is the way they lived. Don't you see that God's going to have to get his people out of that land and away from that? And may I just pause this moment to make this application because these things happen unto them, for examples unto us. Now, I hear a great deal today that if you're going to witness to this generation and if you can communicate to them, you've got to get down to their level. I disagree with that. God's never used that method to witness. God's always, under any circumstances, asked his people to live on a very high and lofty plane. Now, I can well understand that somebody might have come along, one of these present-day theologians, have come along and said to Noah, Now listen, brother Noah, you are spending all your time working here on this boat, and you ought not to be doing that. We are having a big party over here in Babylon tonight. They have just got in a new shipment of marijuana, and we tonight are really going to blow our mind. We are all going to pass around the grass, and we're just going to have a high old time. And we're going to take a trip. And you don't need to build a boat to take a trip. We're going to give you a trip. Come on over. And Noah says, no, I'm not. Well, brother Noah, how you expect to reach all the hippies of Babylon? How are you going to reach the Babylonian beboppers unless you're willing to come down and communicate with them? fact of the matter is God never asked him to come down and communicate. God asked him to give his message. That's what we're asked to give today. And I'm firmly convinced that if God's people would stand firm, and especially these men today that are so afraid they'll lose the crowd, so afraid they'll not have an audience to speak to, and they do everything in the world to get a crowd to speak to, and some of them are having their problems. But God never asked us to compromise. God asked us to give the Word of God. I remember hearing years ago the story about Dr. Schofield over in North Carolina. He's invited over there to speak, and it was a rainy night, the first night he began. Then there's a very small crowd there. And the pastor felt called upon to apologize to Dr. Schofield. He reached over and he said to him, I'm very sorry tonight. There's so few people here to hear a man like you. We just regret it very much. And Dr. Schofield he said, well, my Lord only had 12 men to speak to, and since he only had 12 men and never complained, 
May I say, who is C.I. Schofield? He should complain about a small crowd anywhere. My friend, that's a lesson that this generation hasn't learned. We think it's got to be big, and there's got to be a lot of people there, or God's not in it. Maybe God has just called us to witness in these days. But I have news for you. I believe that if the Word of God's given out, it'll have its effect. It will certainly bring results. And Judah went down, and he sure communicated to the Canaanites. He couldn't have got down more on their level than he did. And look what it did. It brought tragedy. Now we're told, verse 27, it came to pass in the time of her travail that the whole twins were in her womb. came to pass when she travailed, and the one put out his hand. The midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach is upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his head, and his name was called Zerah. Now, here are these names that we've looked at. And I'd like for you now to go with me over to the first book of the New Testament. And let's read here the first chapter, second verse. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zarah of Tamar. And Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And on down, uh, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. And if you just follow it right on through... Why, you find out here, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. This is the line into which the Lord Jesus came, by the way. And this is an evidence of the fact that God must now get his people down into the land of Egypt. All right? We'll return then to the story of Joseph, because he's already down there. He didn't go down willingly, but he's down there. He was taken down, and we saw at the conclusion of chapter 37, the 36th verse, the Midianites sold him, that is, Joseph, into Egypt, under Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, and captain of the guard. Now we're going to find out that Joseph is an altogether different kind of boy than Judah was. I always have felt that Joseph and Benjamin did a great deal of teaching and instruction and personal attention that the other ten boys never did get. These were the only two that Jacob seemed to be interested in. Now, Joseph, because of the hatred and animosity of his brothers, he's been sold down into the land of Egypt in the house of Potiphar, and he happens to be a very important soldier. He's in the military. He had his office in the Pentagon of that day, and he's part of the brass. He's a prominent official, by the way. We had an interlude last time in the 38th chapter, which we've classified as the worst chapter in the Bible. It tells a sordid story of Judah, and it seems about every one of the 
sons was a problem child, with the exception of Joseph and Benjamin. And, of course, Joseph and Benjamin both brought him great heartbreak when they were taken off to the land of Egypt. Now, we saw last time that we were looking at Joseph in the 37th chapter that he was sold down in the land of Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of his guard. Now, this is a pretty dreary prospect for a 17-year-old boy now way down in a foreign land sold into slavery. And there is certainly nothing in the outward aspect of things to bring any encouragement to his heart at all. And this boy seems to be more or less of a hard luck boy. You'll notice down in the land of Egypt, just as everything seems to be moving smoothly and nicely for him, then something always happens. But it happens for a purpose. And it was difficult for Joseph to see it. God never appeared to him at all. He's the one patriarch now that God did not appear to. And yet there's no person in the Old Testament in whose life the purpose of God is more clearly seen than in Joseph. The providence of God is manifest in every detail of this man's life. The hand of God was upon him, and the leading of the Lord is evident. But Joseph is the one to whom God did not appear directly. God appeared to Abraham, he appeared to Isaac and Jacob, but not to Joseph. And we see, though, the direction of God in his life more clearly than in any other. He's the Old Testament example of Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And Joseph himself expressed it in rather vivid language. When you get to the last chapter of Genesis, you'll find out when the brethren at the death of their father felt like Joseph might turn on them, they came to him to actually ask for mercy. And he told them, he held no grudge against him. He says, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So that everything that happened in his life, looking at it from the outward aspect at the time, it looked dark. It looked like it was terrible. But each one of these was a step bringing to fruition God's purpose in this man's life. And we need to reckon that even in our own lives today, that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And God will not let anything come to a child of his unless it gets his permission, even something bad. You remember Satan had to say, well, there's a hedge about Job. Well, God let the hedge down. There's a hedge about you if you're God's child. And nothing can touch you unless it gets his permission. And friends, if it gets his permission, all things are working for good. Even our misfortunes, our heartbreak, our suffering are for good in his glory. Dr. Torrey used to say years ago, he make this statement. He says, Romans 8:28 is a soft pillow for a tired heart. Someone has put it like this, God nothing does 
nor suffers to be done but what we would ourselves, if we but could see through all events of things as well as he. Now let's follow this young man Joseph, and we'll see what's going to happen to him. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. Fine-looking young man, 17 years old, make a very fine helper, and slaves were certainly sold in that day. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, immediately that he gets into the home of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, while the Lord was obviously with him, a blessing came to that home. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Well, now, this sounds fine. This is great up to this point. And you'd like to add, and they lived happily ever after, but they didn't because this is life, this is reality. And the child of God's going to encounter temptation and trouble and problems in this world. This is what's going to happen to Joseph. Now notice verse 4, And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. Now, just think of this. Because of the way that Joseph served, why he's elevated now to the position where he handles all of the material substance, the chattels, I guess even the real estate of this man. In other words, the man trusted him with everything. Verse 5, it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And now verse 6, And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored." This man trusted him so much that he never even demanded an accounting at all. He didn't have to get a CPA to go over the books. He believed in this young man. And the only thing that Potiphar worried about as an officer of Pharaoh was that he pleased Pharaoh and that he did his job there and he just let Joseph handle his own personal affairs. The only thing that he knew was that when he sat down at the table... The food was put before him. That's all that he was interested in because he trusted this young man. Now, notice what's going to happen. Verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Now, if you'll note here, this man, Potiphar, gave him, obviously, the full run of his home, palace, and he had charge of everything. And while Joseph was busy, while the wife was busy, but she was busy scheming up. He was a handsome young man, 
I don't know this, but I have a notion old Potiphar was an old man. That was generally the custom in that day anyway, an old man and a young wife. And so she sees Joseph, and she attempts to entice him. Now notice, and he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. That is, he doesn't know all, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in his house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, do you notice that this young man is serving God in all of this? When he went down to the land of Egypt, which was loaded with idols, it was a land filled with idolatry just as much as Babylon was. In that land of idolatry, Joseph maintained a testimony for the living and true God and a high moral standard. When this woman enticed him, why, he said, no. He said, my master's turned over everything to me, but you, you're his wife. Look what a high viewpoint that Joseph had of marriage at this time. Way back here at the beginning, you see, God gave marriage to mankind. It's given to all mankind. And when a man begins to despise the marriage vow, he is beginning to despise God, friends. And a man that will do that will generally break any vow he's made to God. It's been always interesting for me to note in my ministry that a divorced person, that is, who gets a divorce because he's been unfaithful, that generally that individual will get as far from God as any person possibly can. And I've seen that happen again and again. Now, Joseph here is attempting to be true to God, and what a high viewpoint that he has. Now, look what's going to come to pass because of the fact that he is attempting to serve the living and true God. It came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. You see, this man Potiphar, as an officer of Pharaoh, was away from home a great deal. I expect maybe too much away from home. And this woman didn't just tempt Joseph one time, but again and again and again. It was a constant temptation to him. And this young man did not yield. Well, you can imagine that welling up in her now, there is just absolutely boiling a resentment now against Joseph. And the old bromide has it, hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. And believe me, she's going to take revenge on Joseph. Notice verse 11 now of chapter 39 of Genesis. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass, 
when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. Things weren't so well between Potiphar and his wife. Notice how she speaks of him in such a mean, degrading way. She says, See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. In other words, the wife probably had been guilty of this before. The one man that I feel sorry for is Potiphar. He's the sap, if there ever was one. But I'm of the opinion that he suspected something all along. And she's been beginning now to cover up her tracks. She says, See, he's brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. May I say to you, this boy now, just in his teens, down there in the land of Egypt, now is being framed in the most dastardly manner. And it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. Now, that's still her charge against him. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. In other words, the husband was away from home. And so she has all of this built up, this story, to tell him when he arrives. And when he arrives, why, she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. Now, he believed her, though. This fellow Potiphar, I don't know what he was. He's an officer in the army of Pharaoh. He must have been among the brass. I guess when he was with them, he probably was a pretty sharp soldier, but he sure was a stupid husband. And he's a sap. He believes his wife. I feel sorry for him married to this woman. He doesn't stand a chance. And I'm of the opinion she'd been unfaithful many times before. And Joseph was to be another one in her conquest, and it just didn't work. So she frames up against the young man. The charge now is brought against him. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. Now, here this boy is certainly having bad luck, is he not? He was the favorite up there of his father, wearing a coat of many colors. The next thing he knew, his brothers take off the coat. They put him down in a pit. The next thing, he hears them dickering with tradesmen. Ishmaelites go into Egypt. And this boy, 17-year-old boy, sold down into Egypt. And I'm of the opinion on the way down, and after he got there, he spent many nights wetting the pillow with his tears, and he certainly was homesick. Now, just as he's getting along in this new position, been elevated to a high position, he's a capable young man, 
and a fine-looking young man, the wife of Potiphar, she attempted to lure him to commit a sin. And his high moral standard is something that you need to note, and he does not yield. And as a result, why, she frames him, and the poor boy doesn't stand a chance. After all, you can see the position that Joseph is in. He's a slave. And though he's been elevated, he's still a slave. And on the other side, here is Potiphar's wife. It's like Caesar's wife. You just don't say anything about her. And her word would be accepted. You can well understand poor Joseph. He didn't even need to open his mouth. He's guilty before he could make any kind of a defense at all. And he summarily and immediately finds himself put in the prison. And he's put in the prison where those that were prisoners of Pharaoh were put. Now again, in verse 21, we read, "...but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison." And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Now, the hand of God is certainly obvious and seen in this man's life. But over against it is these terrible things that happened to him. Now he finds himself in prison. How discouraging that must be or would have been to the average person. But the interesting thing is, we're told the Lord's with Joseph. He didn't appear to him as he did to the other patriarchs, and he showed him mercy. And lo and behold, Joseph found favor here with the keeper of the prison. Now, I think he was naturally a very attractive young man and a man of tremendous ability. I think that is true beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was a man of remarkable ability. But the important thing is, all of that would have come to naught had not God been with him. And God was with this young man, and God was leading him. All of this is moving to the accomplishment of a purpose in this young man's life. Now, Joseph recognized that. And when he recognized that, that gave him a buoyancy, an attitude of optimism. The circumstances did not get him down. He lived on top of his circumstances. I have a preacher friend of mine, and he tells me that my problem is the circumstances are all on top of me, and I never live on top of my circumstances. Well, I'm of the opinion that that's true to a certain extent. I think many of us may be that way. But certainly this boy here is one that's living on top of his circumstances, and the Lord is with him, and he recognizes that the hand of God's in his life, and he never was discouraged. They say, you know, that discouragement is one of the finest weapons that Satan has, discouragement and disappointment. But this young man seems to have surmounted all of his circumstances. And we find here the chastening of the Lord. It's grievous at the time, 
but it's going to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in the life of this boy. Now, the thing is that the story of Joseph reveals that every man does not have his prize. Satan says he does. But there have been several men that Satan couldn't buy. Joseph was one. Job was another. Paul the apostle was another. These were men, and there have been many of them, that Satan can't buy. He certainly despises mankind. And poor old Potiphar here, he's the one to be pitied, and not Joseph, actually. And it's a good thing Joseph is out of that home, but God's moving in his life. Was it the will of God for Joseph to be put in prison? Well, it's almost essential for him to be there. Now, here in the 40th chapter, we have a section here that, frankly, it doesn't seem to advance the story of Joseph. Rather, it seems to slow it down to absolutely no movement at all. We see Joseph now in prison, and he's delayed and circumscribed by the ingratitude of the chief butler of Pharaoh. Here he is in prison. The question arises, well, what about him? Well, may I say to you, all of this is accomplishing God's plan and purpose in his life, as we're going to see now as we get into this chapter. Well, we said at the beginning that no person in the Bible has so many parallels in his life to that of the Lord Jesus, and there's no one so much like the Lord as Joseph is. And let me pick up, I made that contrast the other day, or rather comparison the other day. Now let's look at some more. We mentioned the other day that Joseph was sent to his brethren. The Lord Jesus was sent to his brethren. He said, I've been sent to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. And Joseph was hated by his brethren without a cause. The Lord Jesus was hated by his brethren without a cause. And Joseph was sold by his brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ was sold by one of his brethren. And Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. The Lord Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the brethren plotted to kill him. His own brethren plotted to kill Joseph. And the brethren of the Lord Jesus plotted to kill him. Came unto his own. His own received him not. He was put in the pit. And that was to be a place of death, you'll recall, for him. The Lord Jesus was crucified. Joseph was raised up out of that pit. The Lord Jesus was raised up the third day. Joseph obeyed his father. The Lord Jesus obeyed his father. I do always the things that please him, the Lord said. And Joseph, his father, sent him to seek his brethren. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told that he came to do the will of God and he came to seek his brethren. And Joseph was mocked by his brethren. Behold, this dreamer cometh. The Lord Jesus was mocked by his brethren. If he be the Christ, let him come down now from the cross. And the brethren refused to receive Joseph. And the brethren of the Lord Jesus refused to receive him. And Joseph, they took counsel to kill him. And the Lord Jesus, they plotted his death. And in Joseph's life, his coat was returned to his father, dripping with blood. And they took the coat of the Lord Jesus and gambled for it. And Joseph, after being sold into Egypt, 
he was lost sight of for many years. Christ ascended up into heaven, and he says, "Ye'll see me no more. And he was tempted, Joseph was, by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he resisted. The Lord Jesus was tempted by the world, flesh, and the devil, and he won. And Joseph, he became the Savior of the world during this period, physically, of course, and Christ is the Savior of the world today. The parallels there, I think, are indeed striking, and we need to note them, of course. Now, let's get into this 40th chapter, and we'll notice something here. Last time, I think I ended with a question, how could it be the will of God for him to be put in prison now? And you'll recall that he was put in prison. Actually, this fellow Potiphar, someone's raised the question with me, I don't think that he believed his wife at all. Certainly wasn't a happy home. She called him he, you know, that wasn't very complimentary. And Potiphar actually had no confidence in his wife. Why, if he had, he would have put Joseph to death immediately. There'd been no ifs and ands about him. What he did was just put him into prison and forget about him. This man, I think, recognized the kind of wife he had, but he's sure to be pitied to be married to her. But all of this is working to the advantage of Joseph. Somebody says, well, wait a minute. How can it do that? Here he is now sold into slavery and unjustly accused, and now he's put in prison and forgotten. How do you interpret that? Well, I interpret that that the Word of God is certainly being fulfilled and the will of God is accomplished in his life. The thing is that this man, Joseph, is kept in prison for a definite purpose, God's purpose. Suppose that when he's going to interpret the dream of the butler, and suppose the butler, when he got out, did as he promised he'd do. He went into Pharaoh on behalf of Joseph and said, this young fellow's in there and he's accused falsely, and you ought to let him out of prison. Well, the night he had his dream and needed someone to interpret it, and someone to become prime minister of Egypt, why, Joseph at that time would have been halfway back to the promised land. He would have been long gone from the land of Egypt. But you see, he's here and being kept here, detained for a purpose. You see the hand of God working in this man's life all the way through. Joseph, hated by his brethren without a cause, delivered him to the Gentiles, he couldn't defend himself, though he's unjustly accused. The Lord Jesus was delivered by his own to the religious rulers, who in turn delivered him to the Gentiles. And he was innocent. And Pilate, like Potiphar, didn't believe the accusation against Jesus, found him innocent and scourged him. You see, Joseph had to suffer because this man, Potiphar, had to put up a front there at the court of Pharaoh. And Joseph found favor inside of the jailer here. And we find that the Roman centurion said, Truly, this is the Son of God. And Joseph was numbered with the transgressors. And he was a blessing to the butler, and he was judgment for the baker. And you remember the Lord Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One was judged and the other was blessed. And you'll notice as we go through now chapter 40, 
Joseph gives all the glory to God. Now, with all of that in mind, it's very important now to look at the wording of this chapter here, which seems, again, as if it's not advancing the action here at all. And it came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard under the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And friends, that wasn't any accident, you see. But what does this reveal? Well, it reveals, first of all, the arbitrary and dictatorial position and policy that Pharaoh of Egypt had. I do not know what the baker did. Maybe burnt the biscuits for breakfast. I don't know. But for some little whim on the part of Pharaoh, he puts him in prison. Now, what did the butler do? Well, it may be that he was bringing up a glass of wine to hand to Pharaoh, and he stumped his toe and spilled it on a Persian rug that was there. I don't know, but he did something, and it must have been rather minor. And because of that, why, here these two, the butler and the baker, are in prison, and they're put right in there where Joseph is. Now, Joseph occupies a Good position there in the prison even. Everywhere the man went, his ability certainly was recognized. And the Scripture says a man's gift makes room for him. And certainly that was true for Joseph, though he was a slave and now a prisoner. Poor fellow, you say. Well, God's moving in his life with a definite purpose. Now, we find that though he's put next to these men, they're put there for three days. Actually, that's very temporary. Any other person that had gone through what Joseph has gone through and had been put in that prison, they'd give up. But he didn't give up, friends. That's not the way that he did things. And we're going to see that now in just a few moments. Now, will you notice And the captain of the guard, I'm reading verse 4, chapter 40 of Genesis. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, and they continued a season in the war. Now, Joseph got acquainted with them, you see, because he had charge of them, and it was his business to take care of them while they were in prison. Now, verse 5, And they dreamed a dream, both of them, each man his dream in one night. Each man according to the interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. And Joseph came in unto them in the morning, looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. Joseph came in. He was an optimistic type individual himself, always very bright and sharp. And he goes in, and these two fellows who occupy a position with Pharaoh sitting there very doleful with a very dark look upon their faces and a dark brown taste in their mouths. And so they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We've dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? 
Tell me them, I pray you. Now, Joseph gives God all the glory in all of this. And later on, we'll find another young Hebrew in a foreign court who will do the same thing. Give God the glory. And I wish today that I could get over to Christians the thought that anything that you do for the Lord, make sure that God gets the glory for it. One of the reasons that many of us are not blessed as much as the Lord would like to bless us is because when we do receive some wonderful thing, we take it for granted and we do not give God the glory for it. And we ought to do that. We need to give God the glory. And so here, why he should give God the glory, and he does. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me them, I pray you. And the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded and a blossom shot forth, and the clusters thereof brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in his hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I gave the cup unto Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said unto him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place, and thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou wast his butler. You see, it's interesting that in these dreams that in the Old Testament, you don't have God moving that way after you have the canon of Scripture, after the New Testament is concluded. We don't need that today. But God did speak in this day through dreams. And he spoke in the language that these people could understand. A butler would understand about serving wine, because that's what he did to Pharaoh, that he served him. And that would be something he could understand. Also, you remember later on that old King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an image. He was certainly acquainted with images, with idols. Now we find here that this is the interpretation. Joseph here interprets the dream. He says that you're going to be restored in three days. He said, now when you are, verse 14, but think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. And poor Joseph said, look, they put me way back here in the prison. I'm so far back in the prison that they just have to pump water to me. I'm just forgotten and I will stay here and rot unless somebody moves in my behalf. Now, you're going to be out of here in three days. I've interpreted your dream. Don't forget me. And he promised he wouldn't. Verse 15, Joseph is still speaking. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said unto Joseph, I also was in my dream, and behold, I had three white baskets on my head. And in the uttermost basket 
there was of all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh, and the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, shall hang thee on a tree. The birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. Now that's the interpretation for the baker. And he speaks to him in the language he understands. He sees these baskets that are filled with these little cookies, sweetmeats, baked meats. This is the language the man would understand. Now Joseph interprets it for them. And he tells him that, but it's not going to be good for you. In three days he'll take you out and hang you, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Now, verse 20, "...it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the butler unto his butlership again, and he gave the cup unto Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them." Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, the poor boy is really in a predicament. Here he is, not only a slave, but one that's been falsely accused. But that doesn't mean that the bars on the prison are not just as hard as they are as if he were guilty. And the lock is just as difficult to get through. And the poor boy is here. And it was the purpose of Potiphar just to forget him. That's the way he covered up the scandal that was in his own home. In fact, his wife was unfaithful. And this is the way he covered up, and poor Joseph had to pay for it. His one glimmer of light was that the butler would remember him to Pharaoh. And this seemed to be such a marvelous way of getting the ear of Pharaoh and getting him out of prison. But that butler, the minute he got out, he's so elated with that, goes back to his job and forgets all about poor Joseph. Well, Joseph is not discouraged, but he did not know the details. But you see, God wants to leave him there, friends, for a purpose. Suppose that the butler had gone into Pharaoh enthusiastically and said, "'Say, I tell you, there's a prisoner down there who ought not to be there. He's innocent. He's been falsely accused. And he interpreted my dream for me. I sure'd appreciate it, Pharaoh, if you'd just let him out. Suppose Pharaoh let him out. Don't you see what would have happened, friends? He'd have been back in the home of his father Jacob by the time that Pharaoh needed him to interpret his dream. So God's just going to keep him around, and it's a good place to keep him. You'll know where to find him if you leave him there in that prison. That's what he does. And yet Joseph believed that God was moving in his life. Have you ever stopped even at this point to want to put down those things that are discouraging experiences, and yet there were certain fruits to the faith of this man Joseph? He had a real faith through it all. Well, let me give you a list here. First of all, Joseph was faithful in every relationship 
Have you ever noticed that? In every relationship of life, he was faithful. We find that he was faithful to Potiphar. He was faithful to him. And we find out that when he's in prison, that he was faithful there to the keeper of the prison. We find that he was faithful to God. He always gave God the glory. And he's faithful to the keeper of the prison, which we've mentioned. Now, we're also going to see that he's faithful to Pharaoh a little later on. And he's also faithful to his own brethren. And it made him faithful. I believe that if you're genuinely a believer, you're going to be faithful. Now, we are living in a day when I think one of the most tragic things is happening is the fact there's so few Christians you can depend on today. I have a friend. He's head of a large Christian organization. He and I had an occasion to be sitting together alone in a foreign city, just he and I. And he was telling me something of his problems that he had. And he has a tremendous organization. And he went on to say how few men he could really trust in his organization. And it's a Christian organization. How many men are in that position today? There's so few that are faithful. And there's so few Christians that are faithful today. And we thank God for those that are faithful. And I've always thanked the Lord that he at least put around me everywhere I've ever been a few faithful ones that I tell you they are the dear ones that are great encouragement. Joseph was that kind of a man. And we find that his faith did something else. He was possessed with an optimistic outlook on life under all the trials and temptations. Down in the pit in Potiphar's house, and now in prison. And then Joseph had a sympathetic and kindly attitude toward everyone. His faith did that. You notice how kind he was actually to the butler and to the baker. And later on, we'll see to his brethren. And then another thing that his faith did for him made him a very humble man. He gave God the glory in all the relationships and situations of this life. What a wonderful person that he is. What did it? Well, he believed God, just as his father Abraham had. And this is the fruit that worked out in his own life. So that now this man is in the back of the prison, down in the dungeon, and he's forgotten, it would seem. But someone hadn't forgotten. God hadn't forgotten him. And God was working in his life. Now, friends, that has a message for you and me. And let me just suggest it here in closing. And that is, I do not know what your circumstances are right now. But I do know, judging from the letters we get, there's some of you in a hard place. As one man said to me, I'm between a rock and a hard place. And things look dark. You don't see the way out. And you really wonder whether God cares. Well, the reason God's given us this story of Joseph is he wants you to know that he cares and that he's moving in your life. And if you're his child and he's not judging you for some particular sin you committed, he's permitting this to happen to you for your good. And even if he's judging you, it's going to be for your good. You can't miss how wonderful our God is.